listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. Good evening. This is James Napolitano, the International Vice President of the National League of Justice Security Professionals, where members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of record messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. As he never tired of reminding people, Reagan was a former president of the Screen Actors Guild, also known as SAG, and the first member of the AFL to occupy the White House. The Union air traffic controllers had been impressed enough with Reagan's labor bona fides, and by a statement of support he gave the Union while a candidate to buck the trend of the wider labor movement and endorse him over incumbent Jimmy Carter, in the elections of 1980. But despite Reagan's union affiliation in Hollywood and his oft-cited admiration for Franklin D. Roosevelt, he had, in fact, never been entirely comfortable with either the collective nature of labor organizations or the means by which they sought their objectives. Movie studios were perpetually strained by tight budgets and schedules, and viewed work stoppages as potentially calamitous, while the industry's transience resulted in non-standardized hiring practices and harsh working conditions, as well as in inhibitions against labor organizing. In 1927, Louis B. Mayer, head of Metro-Goldwyn-Meyer MGM, formed a company union. The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences intended to support the formation of independent unions. The Academy succeeded at gathering numerous Hollywood professionals under its umbrella and did produce labor contracts, but it also enforced management-friendly regulations including salary caps, limits on the activities of talent agents, and rules prohibiting studios from poaching one another's stars. When in 1933, in response to the Depression, the Academy moved to impose a 50% wage cut on actors' salaries, resentment boiled over, and a contingent broke away to found the Screen Actors Guild. SAG's first success was shaking free of the controlling rules the Academy had put in place limiting actors' freedom to chart their own careers. The next year, SAG and Actors' Equity agreed to peacefully coexist and SAG was accepted into the AFL. Reagan joined the West Coast Film Colony in 1937. A radio sportscaster with the Chicago Cubs, he had come to California on a spring training trip with the team and, well, in Hollywood, arranged to be screen-tested. Warner Brothers, like what it saw in the affable young man from Illinois and offered a seven-year contract, Reagan's film career, which spanned 53 movies, would be spent almost exclusively in second-tier productions, such as Love is in the Air, 1937, Dark Victory in 1939 with Bette Davis, Santa Fe Trail, 1940, Newt Rockney, 
All-American, 1940, and this is the Army, 1943. He joined SAG and in 1941 was elected to its board. In 1944, after stateside service in the Second World War, he became the Union's president, a position he would hold until 1952, and then again briefly in 1959. One of the first experiences with Union politics came during the war. SAG was drawn into a dispute involving the Conference of Studio Unions, CSU, a coalition of technical workers, labor groups that included some members of the Communist Party and the reigning AFL Affiliated Technicians Union, the International Association of Theatrical and Stage Employees, IATSE. Reagan was part of SAG's team that met for months with the disputants in what proved a futile effort to resolve the standoff, and he came away disgusted by the process. He said, Some days I'd go home after hours of negotiations and think we'd made some progress towards a settlement. He later wrote, But the next morning we'd meet again and strikers would walk into the room with their lawyers and 27 new demands we'd never discussed before, which they said had to be settled before they'd call off the strike. In the years immediately following the war, Reagan's concerns about communism deepened as he came to believe leftist unions were trying to impact Hollywood generally. American movies occupied 70% of all the playing time on the world's movie screens in those first years after World War II, he would later write, and as was to become more and more apparent to me, Joseph Stalin had set out to make Hollywood an instrument of propaganda of Soviet expansionism aimed at communizing the world. Anti-communist fervor was pervasive enough in the movie colony to infect everyone from Walt Disney to gossip columnists Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons, as well as Reagan's own brother, Neil. Neil Reagan, along with Hopper and Parsons, was recruited by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to gather information about questionable local lefties. The future president was himself inquired after by the FBI because he attended meetings of liberal organizations, including one opposed to aiding Chinese nationalist Chiang Kai-shek. In order to join the fight against malignant Soviet influences and to protect his career, Reagan turned FBI informant. Assigned an informer's code number, T-10, he secretly provided to the FBI names of SAG members he thought had communist sympathies, and in 1947 he testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee, H-U-A-C, although he did not name names in that appearance. Reagan, in the early 1950s, became a familiar presence in American homes as the host and occasional star of television's General Electric Theater. General Electric, which was in the process of diversifying its operations and opening autonomous plants across the country, sent Reagan on the road each year to make promotional appearances at new GE sites. Reagan did this for eight years, later claiming to have visited all 135 General Electric facilities. The speech, which came to be called 
A Time for Choosing, depicted an America endangered. The enemy at the gates was collectivism in the form of big government, and each citizen would need to count himself ready to meet the challenge. We have come to a time of choosing, Reagan offered. Either we accept the responsibility for our own destiny, or we abandon the American Revolution and confess that an intellectual belief in a far distant capital, Washington, can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. His relationship with GE ended in 1962 when the firm canceled the General Electric Theater. He appeared in his last film, The Killers, in 1964, and hosting the Western series Death Valley Days in 1965. Reagan's formal coming out as a political figure is usually associated with an October 27, 1964 appearance he made on behalf of Republican President candidate Barry Goldwater, at which he delivered his signature talk and raised $1 million for the Goldwater campaign. Reagan, however, was by then a part of a crusade for grander than Goldwater's election hopes, which against popular incumbent Lyndon Johnson were slim. A fringe but powerful new right coalition had been germinating ever since the 1952 Republican Party convention, where conservative Senator Bob Taft, co-author of the Taft-Hartley bill, had been rejected as a presidential candidate in favor of Dwight Eisenhower. Goldwater, as expected, lost to Johnson in a landslide, but the seeds of the coming conservative revolution had been sown. Reagan, one of its most promising figures, it had been long assumed in California that a career in politics was his for the taking, and he had been approached about running for the U.S. Senate or the governorship. It was to this latter office that Reagan successfully ascended in 1966, the first step on his journey to the presidency and his confrontation with the nation's air traffic controllers. From the Boston strike of 1919, the Memphis sanitation strike of 1968, there had long been disagreement about the labor rights of government employees at the municipal, state, and also the national level. In January 1962, President John F. Kennedy issued an executive order allowing federal employees to form unions and collectively bargain, and the Postal Reorganization Act passed in 1969 established a means for binding arbitration in the face of labor stalemates involving postal employees. While these steps signaled acceptance by the federal government of its employees' rights to organize and negotiate their demands, the Taft-Hartley Act and later the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978 prohibited federal workers from striking. But could Americans in the nation's employ really be expected to forego so fundamental a weapon? By 1981, the government was increasingly hiring contract services from the private sector, meaning that at some work sites, a federal employee who was not at liberty to strike might work side by side with someone who is free to do so. The Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, PATCO, founded in 1968, made it clear that they would defy the act 
in the year of their founding, they launched what it called Operation Air Safety, a deliberate slowdown of traffic at the nation's hub airports. The next year, the 17,000 members staged a three-day sick-out. Transportation Secretary John Wolpe, concerned by PATCO's actions, asked former journalists and former presidential advisor John Carson to investigate. Carson's report of January 1970 detailed a poor working relationship between PATCO and the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, which governed the work conditions of the controllers and managed their daily schedules and prospects for promotion. It also cited fusion resulting from the fact that Congress, not the FAA, established the controllers' benefits and rates of pay. Members of the committee have never previously observed a situation in which there is as much mutual resentment and antagonism between management and its employees, said the report. The Corson Committee also noted that controllers were frustrated by their inability to communicate upwards and that those who spoke out about on-site problems or equipment failures feared endangering their chances of advancement. Due to the physical and psychological demands of the job being so great, they would never manage to remain at it long enough to earn a decent retirement. FAA data shows that between 1976 and 1979, about 8% of U.S. controllers who retired did so for medical reasons before they were eligible for full retirement benefits. Senator Daniel Fung, a member of a Senate Civil Service Committee, found it ironic that a blackjack dealer in Las Vegas is generally relieved from his duty after 40 minutes of dealing because of the monotony and mental stress of keeping up with a deck of cards, while an air traffic controller responsible for moving airplanes in and out of a busy airport will frequently remain on the radar scope for four hours without relief. One controller reported, some days I go home and walk in the door, and my wife takes one look at my face and my clothes, which are sweated through from the nick down, and she doesn't say a word. She sends my son to his room, and she makes me a drink, and we don't talk for two hours. Their work's uniqueness created a militancy among the controllers, as well as a distinct sense of pride. Most had developed their skills in the military, many in Vietnam, and the FAA training they experienced included an 18-week training course so rigorous a significant percentage of the trainees were eliminated. The controllers, even as they resented being taken for granted, saw themselves as elite, excelling at a job few people could or would do. In March 1970, when 2,200 controllers staged a massive sick-out that lasted for 20 days, the Air Transport Association, ATA, representing the major airlines, obtained a court order sending the controllers back to work under the threat of lawsuits and fines. The ATA stopped short of demanding the fines, but as part of the negotiated settlement, PATCO was forced to accept a permanent federal injunction forbidding the union from engaging in concerted actions such as strikes, stoppages, or slowdowns. In the event of any such stoppage, the union could be fined $25,000 per day. 
The controllers found a legal way to defy the injunction by insisting on the mandated five-mile horizontal separation between aircraft. It was well known in the industry that controllers at busy hubs routinely shortened the separation space to three miles or less in order to facilitate more takeoffs and landings. The airlines knew of and benefited from this practice, but controllers could insist on the standard required spacing, and when they did, the resulting delays hurt the airline's reputations with consumers and wasted as much as $1 million a day in fuel as planes idled on runways. The Transportation Secretary, Volp, had agreed to rehire some of the controllers fired over the illegal sickouts. However, despite the permanent injunction, stoppages occurred in 1976 over salary issues and in 1978 because International Airlines ceased offering controllers the cherished perks known as fan flights, in which a controller was allowed a free ride on a plane's cockpit in order to become familiar with pilot-to-ground communications. Everyone in the industry knew the privilege was abused for the controller's personal travel, but it was nonetheless seen as disrespectful when it was taken away. PACO did have some success with the help of the Corson Report and other publications in educating the Washington and the public to the idea that air traffic controllers deserved special considerations because their jobs were both crucial to the public and extremely high stress. By 1980, the controllers had won from Congress retirement at age 50 with full benefits if they had 20 years of service in. PACO had also amassed a 5 million nest egg based on dues income as well as separate subsistence trust worth almost as much which was, albeit not in name, a strike fund. In June 1980, PACO's executive board ousted the union's president, John Layden, after 10 years as president, installed a more militant Robert Pulley, who had been vice president, who moved quickly to replace top union staff and attorneys with his own loyalists. The chances for the air traffic controllers were to strike did not appear half bad. PACO had the distinction of being the only federal workers' union to endorse Reagan in the 1980 election. Candidate Reagan had, in turn, written a letter to PATCO on October 20, 1980, informing its members that he was aware of the deplorable state of our nation's air traffic control system, that too few people working unreasonable hours with obsolete equipment has placed the nation's air travelers in unwarranted danger. He assured them that, as President of the United States, he would take whatever steps are necessary to provide our air traffic controllers with the most modern equipment available and to adjust staff levels and work days so that they are commensurate with achieving a maximum degree of public safety. Reagan had met privately with Poli on October 23rd to accept Pat Coe's endorsement and Poli had come away believing his union had Reagan's support. The Pat Coe leadership, along with most Americans, then watched approvingly as the newly inaugurated president held the valiant struggle of the Polish shipyard workers movement, Solidarność, led by Lech Walesa, emulating the Polish unionists. PACO members adopted the term solidarity and began referring to 
fellow members as brothers and sisters. Historically, the controllers had reason to think a strike would go their way as other work actions on the federal employee level had shown. A 1970 Wildcat postal strike in which 175,000 of the nation's 600,000 postal workers walked off the job and preceded set at the time by President Nixon federalizing National Guard soldiers to deliver the mail in place of the missing mailman. Nixon did not invoke the laws that would have declared the strikers felons nor threatened to fire them. Instead, his Secretary of Labor, George P. Schultz, with the AFL-CIO's George Meany serving in an advisory capacity, sat down and hammered out terms for better wages and a restructuring of management employee relations in the postal system. The striking workers returned to their mill roots. More recently, when in 1980, controllers at Chicago's O'Hare Airport staged a slowdown because the FAA had refused to pay them a special stress bonus, the administration of President Jimmy Carter did not enforce the permanent injunction or seek to find PATCO. On June 22, 1981, Poli and Secretary Lewis discussed a provisional new contract package. Lewis described it as the best the administration could do. Since Reagan was seeking to reduce government spending, it offered a raise of $4,000 per year, technical improvements in their workplaces, steeper raises for controllers who served as instructors, a night shift raise, and time and a half after 36 hours of work in any given week. Other benefits offered included that controllers sidelined by medical conditions would receive paid retraining for less stressful jobs within the system. Poli said the offer was fair. Later he said he was inclined to accept it because by PACO's own rules, a vote of 80% of all controllers was required to stage a walkout and in an earlier vote, only 75% had approved such a potential action. Had the PATCO members accepted the deal as offered, estimated to be worth $40 million, and Congress had then approved it, the agreement would have represented a significant victory since PATCO would walk away with an expanded wage and benefits package. But the members soundly rejected the, the pact Lewis had outlined, voting 13,495 to 616 against ratification. Poli later explained that the strike was called because of earlier burnout because U.S. controllers work more hours than controllers other free world countries because wages do not keep up with inflation and because of management's attitudes that ridicule our profession and turn deaf ears to our input into aviation safety. In France, they work 32 hours, West Germany 33 hours, and Australia 35 hours, and received fewer vacations or paid sick days than controllers in major systems worldwide. And to wrap this one up. This is Ron Michael, president of the NLJSP, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. 
where the member comes first. Enjoy this podcast. 